right. Good morning. How's everyone doing this morning? Yeah, ready, ready to sing, right? Um, so this morning, uh, I come to you uh, with a message uh, that is all about the posture of our heart. If you're unfamiliar with the term posture, that's like how you stand, right? So how you stand before God. Uh, so this morning, uh, I'm going to do something a little unorthodox. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Joel, and we'll go from there. And let's see if I have this on the screen here. If you do not have a Bible, just raise your hand. We have some Bibles back there, and we'll make sure we get you one. I just want everybody to read this with me. It's important that we read it together as opposed to uh, being separate this morning. So anyone need one? There's some under the pews, too, if you need one there. So this morning, um, we're talking about the book of Joel. And uh, I'm going to give you just a brief summary of the book of Joel uh, instead of showing you the video, I'll just give you the sort of scholarly overview uh, real fast. <clears throat> so it's believed that Joel was written in what is known as the Persian era, uh, sometime between 539 and 333 BCE, or BC, so before Common Era, before Christ. Uh, because it refers to Greeks uh, in the text, uh, it includes imagery attested elsewhere in late prophetic literature, so it, uh, it has references to Obadiah and Malachi. Uh, and the name Joel, which means Yahweh is God, was prominent in Persian period biblical literature. So that's how we've timed it to know that it was kind of written around that time. Um, so the most of this book is describing uh, a crisis and then a redemption that happens. Uh, so if you read it this week, you'll know in the beginning that there's this crisis uh, where a locust plague has basically destroyed most of everything. Crops, food, uh, anything that's desirable has been destroyed. And then it's about returning to God and having that redemption come back to you where he blesses you back. Uh, so it's all about establishing God's sovereignty and explaining why ritual can bring us closer to him. Because that's what Joel wanted us to do. Use the process of ritual to come back to God. Some of the prophets before him were using these uh, crises to critique Israel. They were saying, Israel, you're failed, you're wrong, you need to come back to God. But they weren't necessarily always giving uh, an example on how to do that. And in this case, Joel, in the three chapters that he has, is establishing how to do that. Uh, so the, the name of this message is Fasting, Weeping, and Mourning, uh, which for most of you does not sound like a very positive message, right? Uh, so yeah, fasting, weeping, and mourning. And I put a little image here. This is St. Luke. This was painted by Rembrandt. For if anybody is a, an art aficionado, I love Rembrandt's paintings. I love his lighting. It's very dark. Apparently, this was before he was killed. So he's praying. This is his image of him before he was killed. For anyone who's interested in that kind of thing. Uh, I just, I'm referencing a little bit of Luke later, so I figured that would be a good way to go. So if you will, uh, and you have your Bibles ready, we're going to read Joel 1 and 2 together in its entirety. Ha <laughs> ha! Right? How many pastors do that in church? Usually we come at you with some scriptures and we're like, all right, we're going to tell you this. No, we're going to read one and two all together. And this might take a few minutes, but uh, you know what? I am in the English Standard Version, which is very similar to the King James or New King James. So if the words are a little different, uh, just be okay with that. If you have your iPads, ESV is what you're looking for. It has nice grammar and language. Uh, but we're going to read through Joel in one and two. And the third chapter, I'll let you go home and read that later if you haven't already read that. <clears throat> but I want to read the whole thing to you because uh, what I think sometimes we miss when we're trying to make a point is we miss the context in which something is said. Uh, and for Joel, 
if you miss the first chapter, then you don't understand the full thing of redemption. Like, you don't get the whole point. Uh, so, before I start this, there was one thing that I was going to preach, and it just did not come out. It didn't work out right. It was great, but it, I really felt called to fasting, weeping, and mourning. There was a song that we used to sing over and over and over again, and uh, the lines of it just repeated, We return to you, we're fasting and weeping and mourning. And oh, my Lord, you're returning. Because we lie here weeping between porch and altar. Pour out your spirit on your sons and your daughters. And we lie here weeping between porch and altar. And pour out your spirit on your sons and your daughters. Just that right there is all directly from Joel. And we'll get to that in a minute. So here, if you're with me, let's read this uh, together. So this is Joel 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it's cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth. And it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lamb it like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priest mourned, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns, because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up and the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go and pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and his destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before your eyes, joy and gladness from the house of your God? The seed shrivels under the clouds, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed, because there is no pasture for them, even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you. Because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So in this first chapter, we're seeing what is obviously terrible, right? Can you imagine living in a time period in which everything that you've known is destroyed by locusts? And if by not those locusts, then the other locusts. And if not by those locusts, then by fire, by destruction. Everything you have is lost. Maybe some of you can actually relate to this, given the situation of the flood that we recently had. Maybe you've lost a lot of things. Uh, because for unforeseen circumstances, sometimes these things happen and they take things away. But we can turn those into good. We can turn those bad into good, basically. And and this is what we're going to get at in chapter 2. 
So let's continue reading. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming and is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. There like has never been before, nor will be again after them. Through the years of all generations, fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. I'm going to stop right there. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness. They're leaving the wilderness and entering into the garden again. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots they leap on top of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before the peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up in the houses, they enter through the window like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes the word of his powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? I'm going to stop right there. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. That's why I'm reading this to you <laughs> right now. I read this and I was like, ah, you know what? I can't read this any other way. I just have to read it. I just have to execute God's word. We'll talk about it later, but I need to execute it in its form. And here's the best part. So we're, here's where God is returning, right? So in chapter 12, or in, sorry, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green, the tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain. The early and the latter rain is before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vasts shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. 
and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. So here in that portion, God has returned to them the things that they have lost. And in some cases, maybe multiplied them. But God goes a step further, right? In the next portion right here, right here in 28 and 29. This is my favorite part. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So no longer are we getting material things. Now we are getting his spirit. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Everyone will be covered by his spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. And we'll stop there for now. So in these first two chapters, what we're seeing is this plague that happens, right? It comes and it takes over. It destroys everything. Now, obviously, given what we know about the past, and we've seen some of the previous generations through uh, some of the other prophets and through their history, we know that Israel has a tendency to turn away from God, right? And this is reflective of our own life. We all turn away from God at some point in time. Even on our walks, we put things before him. We put idols before him. Uh, But God is calling them back, and in this case, he's calling them back through the ritual of fasting, weeping, and mourning, right? It's repeated several times throughout here. There's really no way to preach on this without talking about those three things because, well, it's all in there. The part that stands out the most is right here in Joel 2, 12 through 13. And if you have like one of those little Bibles on the side, it says, return to the Lord, right? So this is acknowledging that the Lord is now speaking, right? He is speaking to Israel. And he says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. God is now telling us. not Joel anymore saying this. God is saying, I'm here, but you still need to return to me. I've returned to you. You return to me. And here's how I want you to do it. Fast, weep, mourn. So, God is calling us to return to him, and for most of us, the idea of simply coming to church is returning to him, or maybe reading our Bible once a week, or maybe praying occasionally, maybe even volunteering. But the question is, is that enough for God? Is it? I don't think so, no. There's nothing we can do that is enough for God, but we are called to give back as much as we possibly can to return to him to fast, to weep, and to mourn. And so, since I know this, I had to sort of uh, figure it all out. What does it mean to fast, to weep, and to mourn in in the eyes of God? What does that mean for us? So uh, first and foremost, I'm going to start backwards because we'll start with weeping first. Uh, The definition is very simple. It just means to shed tears, right? Just to cry, right? Just cry. So I was thinking, okay, I can cry, but what am I crying for? So if you will, let's turn with me to Luke 7. And just bookmark Joel, because we'll be in and out of Joel for a little bit. Uh, Turn to Luke 7, uh, and we're going to read from verse 36 to verse 50. So as always, I've packed this full of scripture. uh, (laughs) And I have some that you can read later if you want to go further and deeper into this subject. Uh, But in Luke 7, uh, if we go to uh, verse 36 through 50... 
Uh, we're going to read a passage that you've probably read before. You've probably heard it before, right? You've probably seen this. This is about the sinful woman who washes Jesus' feet. So let's, uh, let's, uh, but there's something interesting about what she washes his feet with, right? So uh, it says here, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, right there, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. I'm going to stop right there for a second. The woman was laying her sins at the feet of Jesus, right? Probably heard like that in a psalm where like, we bow down, you know, we lay our feet at the feet of Jesus, right? Um, So she is literally laying her sins there and she's weeping. She's letting it out. She's washing his feet with her tears. She's saying, God, this is everything I have. Take it from me. Take it. So when we look at it from that perspective, if we're intended to weep, we're intended to weep our sins, the sins that we continue to do, the sins that we did in our past. But we are laying them down at the feet of Jesus, and we are weeping for him. Let's continue, because there's something kind of powerful that goes from there. So in 39, right? Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Huh? Get this? How many of you have ever thought that about somebody else? I'll be honest, I've done it before. You know, I will be the first to admit this. These messages are always messages to myself as much as they are to everybody else. I just want to acknowledge that. So I've been living with this for this week, just saying. Anyway, so and Jesus answered, saying to him, oh, I want to point this out too. Uh, the Pharisee saw this, and he said to himself. So he didn't say it to Jesus, right? He wasn't saying it. He was internalizing it here. But Jesus knows what this guy's thinking. And he says, and Jesus answered him, saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled a larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not escaped to kiss my, ceased to kiss my feet. You do not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who are at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What's interesting about that conversation is she had more sins than Simon, right? She had more sins than maybe the other people, the other Pharisees in the room. And yet, she was forgiven because she was humble enough to weep. She was humble enough. This is all about posture, right? When we come to God, we have to be humble. We have to humble ourselves. We have to get rid of that piety that we build up. You know, like, we don't want to be that guy who's thinking, hey, that person's a sinner, right? No. Well, that's not what we're supposed to do. If you see Jesus in the room or if you feel Jesus' presence in the room, you weep. You let that out, and you bring your sins to his feet. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So now we're going to move on to mourning. This is a little more complicated than weeping, so that's why I'm reverse engineering it here. 
So to mourn means to feel regret or sadness about the loss or disappearance of something, right? Most times we think of mourning, we think of death. We think of people dying. We mourn their loss. We're sad that they're gone. Um, But what we're going to do is we're going to read from James 4. So if you guys want to flip on over again, James 4, we're going to read 8 through 10. And um, here we're going to see a little bit better of an example of what it means to mourn before God. So once you're there, James 4, 8, verse 8. We, know, we all know this first part, right? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Awesome, we know that. <laughs> we'll go a little further, though. So draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So what this is saying is that we must mourn our pride, to mourn the pride that we have. As many of you probably know, or I'll I'll read it here, um, this is from Galatians 2.20. You don't have to go, you don't have to read it, I'll just read it to you. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You've probably heard that before. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, right? We've probably all heard that before. What that means is that you have been, when you accepted Christ into your heart, you died, and you have been resurrected with God. You've been resurrected. Your physical body still exists, but your spirit has been resurrected with Christ, right? So we're called to mourn our pride. We're called to mourn our old selves, to lament the loss of this person that we used to be. It's all about humbling ourselves, humbling our pride. We no longer live. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And I have to constantly mourn my sins and weep for my sins to make this temple a place that God wants to be in. Right? Anybody? Are we, are we on the same page? It feels like everybody's just kind of staring at me like, dude, you are somewhere else. We are called to weep and to mourn, right? <laughs> and and it, it says it no better than this. Be wretched and weep and mourn. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Again, that word has returned, humble yourself. What we have to realize when we are coming to God is we have to humble ourselves before him. We have to forget our pride. We have to forget... Everything that we've put in our lives before him, we have to put those things aside, mourn and weep those things, lose those things and come before God. So by accepting Christ as our Savior, we're called to lament and mourn for ourselves. And while our physical body still exists, our spirit has been risen to Christ. So we have to mourn that old self. So we'll mourn and weep for our sins, mourn our old self, and then we can move on from there. And then to the third part, this is fasting. This is... Uh, the most intricate part of this detail. Why we should fast. We've got a bunch of scriptures here. We'll go over them in a second. But let me give you a definition. Uh, the Christian form of uh, fast, or spiritual form, because this applies to other religions as well, uh, abstain from all or some kinds of food or drink, especially as a religious observance. As I drink water. The irony. <laughs> so it's calling us to abstain. We take things and we move them out of our life. 
Maybe if you've uh, ever done Lint before, Lint is a period of 40 days where you give up something that means something to you. Uh, and the idea is to draw you closer to God, right? It's to get a little bit closer. Uh, Sydney and I, this past year for Lint, gave up uh, social media because it's something that we consumed a lot of our time. We gave up Facebook. We gave up Instagram. We gave up all that stuff. And uh, next thing you know, we don't do it anymore. We just don't. We found it was a distraction that took us away from God, right? It took us away. It was something we cared too much about. And so sometimes fasting isn't just food. It's, in our world, we have a little bit more than just food and water and work. We also have entertainment. We have these things that back then, you know, there, wasn't, you know, there wasn't TVs and there wasn't social media and there wasn't internet and there wasn't you know, your favorite Netflix show, right? So sometimes we're called to abstain from those things, to occasionally abstain from using those things because God wants us to get a little closer to him. There's another definition for fast, and this is my, by far my favorite. So there's fast as in like running, you're running fast. But then there's fast as if like you're fastening something. And it means firmly fixed or attached. And I think that applies more than anything. What we, um, when we're talking about words that are translated, you have to realize that the Bible's been translated from, from the Greek and from Latin. And, and some, some of those words have double meanings, right? So while it is an intention to abstain, but it's also meaning to be firmly fixed and attached. So we're abstaining, so we will be firmly fixed and attached, right? Okay, all right, so... Um, if you guys will, turn with me to Matthew six sixteen, And we're just going to read a few more scriptures here, and then we'll go a little further. So this, uh, this message really is, we're setting it up for uh, communion, because I really want to prepare your hearts to take this in, in the best way possible. So once you get to Matthew 6, we're going to be in verse 16. So this is um, shortly after he's delivered the Beatitudes, and he's been showing their disciples how to pray. So if you're, you're following along, you know, the Lord's Prayer, right? This is shortly after this. So this is a command. This is something that he's doing. Um, so Matthew six sixteen, it says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus here is not saying, um, you know, it's an optional thing. He's saying, when you fast. He says it twice, meaning you should fast, right? <laughs> there comes a time where you should fast. I think a lot of us uh, think that it's just an optional thing. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it uh, very well in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, Jesus takes it for granted that his disciples will observe the pious custom of fasting. Strict exercise of self-control is an essential feature of the Christian life. Such customs have only one purpose, to make the disciples more ready and cheerful to accomplish those things which God would have done. I think he's right there. Jesus is taking for granted the fact that they have all this tradition of fasting, Right? He's thinking, oh, everyone's just going to continue to do it. Uh, but not everyone does. I'm not calling you to go into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights and say that you have to fast food and water, but maybe there's something in your life that you feel is drawing you away from God. Remove it. Remove it for a day. What's it going to hurt? You know, like Remove it for a couple of days. Any person who has have ever had a, a drug problem or an alcohol problem will know that one of the first steps you have to do is to acknowledge that you have that problem and then remove that thing before you can go anywhere. You can't go anywhere else unless it's gone, you know? Like, you can't, 
you can't be like in, in, in AA and hoping to get something out of it if you're still doing it, right? So you have to remove it. So God is calling us to fast. There's an interesting thing in Luke 5, and you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read this to you real fast. Um, and it, it, it's, it's interesting because it's kind of a follow-up to what we just read in Matthew 6, 15, 6 16. Uh, Jesus is being asked why his disciples on earth currently, and the time period with him, are not fasting. So this is Luke 5, 30, 33 through 35, if you want to follow it. Um, make sure I got it right here. Here we go. Uh, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? No. <laughs> Why would you? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. I think we're in those days, aren't we? <laughs> he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts the new wine in the old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. It's kind of a parable there, but the main point to take away is that God is saying that they will fast. Right now, they don't need to fast because God is with them. I'm sitting at the table with them. Jesus, I am here. Why would you fast? I'm already in your presence. But when I am gone, when I'm absent from you, that is when you need to fast. And so there might be times in our lives where we feel like God has escaped us. We might feel like we're distant from him. That would be a perfect time to fast, a perfect time to weep and to mourn, to acknowledge our sins, to set our posture right before God, to humble ourselves before God. Basically, weeping, mourning, and fasting, when you put it all together, is the Christian definition of humbleness. I'm going to read just a little bit of the Beatitudes from you, because uh, it's, it's good. Right? It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Yeah? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who, before, who were before you. My key thing here is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. How can you understand hunger and thirst if you have never hungered or thirsted? <laughs> if you've never felt those real feelings, that's why we fast. That's why we're called to it. We're called to strip our things away from there so that we understand what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Right now, the only thing that I am excited about uh, is taking communion. I'm hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of the blood and of the body, right? Breaking blood, breaking the body, drinking the blood of God. That is what I hunger and thirst for. That is a moment of righteousness. And so this moment is basically coming back. So if you have it at Joel, we're going to read just a little bit more from Joel. And this is great. So Joel 2. And this is verse 18 through 27. I'm going to read it again because I like to make this point clear. 
Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. I'll just leave it there for right now. The Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Because they were fasting and they were weeping and they were mourning, the Lord became jealous for their heart. I don't know if you've ever felt jealousy, right? When someone has something that you have and you really want it, or when someone, let's say for instance, if maybe even in the past you've had a relationship and you've been jealous of that other person, right? That's how God felt for his people. He was jealous for them. And then the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach for the nations. And in the following sentences, he goes on to talk about what all he's going to do, right? And here the Lord is jealous for you. He wants you to return to him. The key point, though, is it goes back to this moment where he says, we return to you with fasting and weeping and mourning. We have to return to him. He's sitting here, right here. His posture, he's right here. He's waiting. He's waiting right here at this table. He's waiting right here in our hearts. But we have to remove our idols, our sins. We have to remove those things that we've put in front of him and return by fasting and weeping and mourning to him. My favorite part, and I'll read this again, this is in 28 through 29. So this is when the Lord goes a little further. He's returned everything they have, and then he goes... And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Right there. There it is. God has gone a step further. He is no longer saying, I'm going to give you these material things back. Yeah, I'm giving you your oil back. I'm giving you your wheat. I'm giving you your barley. I'm giving you your wine. You get it all back, right? Everything's good. But now I'm going to go a step further because your humbleness before me has set the precedent right, and I am going to bless you with my spirit. So in case, um, in case you don't get this point just now, I'm going to give you seven other examples that you can read uh, later on to really harp on the point of fasting and why it might be a good thing to do, to give up something. So the first example uh, comes from Matthew 4 or Mark 1 or Luke 4. Any one of those you can read is pretty solid. Uh, it's Jesus. He spent 40 days and nights fasting in the desert. So if you've got notes, you want to write these down, go for it. Uh, this is if you're preparing for a call, right? Maybe like from last week's sermon with uh, Markello where he was talking about God has called you and sometimes it ain't sounding right with your hearing, right? Like it may sound a little wonky. Maybe fasting will help clarify, bring that clarity to you. Because God wants you to go that step further. He wants you to embrace it, and he'll give you that peace. And that's exactly what Jesus did in those 40 days and 40 nights. In uh, the second one, this is from Acts 14, uh, is seeking wisdom, so if that's you. Paul and Barnabas prayed and fasted for the elders of the church before committing them to the Lord. Um, Another one for showing grief in Nehemiah 1. Uh, Nehemiah mourned, fasted, and prayed when he learned Jerusalem's walls had been broken down, leaving the Israelites vulnerable and disgraced. They were vulnerable, and so he came before the Lord with that posture, mourning, fasting, and praying. Maybe you need deliverance or protection. In Ezra 8, 21 through 23, Ezra declared a corporate fast and prayed for a safe journey for the Israelites as they made their 900-mile trek to Jerusalem from Babylon. Maybe you need to repent. In Jonah 3, 10, Jonah pronounced judgment against the city of Nineveh. The king covered himself with a sackcloth and sat in the dust, and then he ordered the people to fast and pray. And when God saw they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them destruction he had threatened. 
God saved them, right, for repenting. To, to gain victory. Maybe you're, you're going through some troubles and you need some victory. In Judges 20, 26, after losing 40,000 men in battle in two days, the Israelites cried out to God for help. The people went up to Bethel and sat weeping before the Lord. They also fasted that day until the evening. The next day the Lord gave them victory over the Benjamites. And maybe if you just want to worship God, Luke 2 tells the story of an 84-year-old woman, a prophetess named Anna, In verse 37, she never left the temple but worshipped day and night, fasting and praying. She was devoted to God. And if you actually read the whole story, she actually got to be there when Jesus entered. Just think about that, right? (laughs) So she was just worshipping, fasting, praying. Jesus shows up. There you go, right? In a physical form. So uh, this morning, I just want to recap that fasting and weeping and mourning is essential to our journey through Christ. Once we've accepted Christ in our hearts, once we've accepted those words that it's no longer I, but Christ who lives in me, then we have to weep our sins. We have to mourn our old self. And then we have to fast. Not all the time, but when we feel it, when we feel it's needed to align the posture of our hearts that God can align us with him, right? To pour out his spirit on his sons and his daughters. And so this morning, as we prepare for communion, I just want to say a prayer first, and then we'll go in from there. Uh, Dear Lord, we just come to you this morning, and we align our hearts and our posture towards you to humble ourselves. And we acknowledge that we need to weep, and we need to fast, and we need to mourn, and we put ourselves in that position in which we can realign with you. We can draw near to you, as it says. We acknowledge that It is no longer us who lives, but Christ, you who live in us. And we give you thanks for your saving grace and for being here with us. And I just want to lift up everyone in this congregation, no matter what struggles or trials they may be going through, that they can seek to these words of Joel, and they can find peace and find that spirit that will come to them as they go through the process of weeping, fasting, and mourning. And we uplift everyone here in Jesus' name. So um, we have, we're going to do communion real fast. I'm going to read some stuff, and I want you guys to follow along with me um, and pray along with me in a few places. Um, but basically, we have, two, we have the elements here. I want you, when you come up to, to break the bread, I want you to yank off a piece of that yourself uh, and just to acknowledge that you are breaking the, the body of God, right? Uh, I think that is a key point that we don't always make. Uh, It's to acknowledge the fact that we were complicit in the the, the act of putting him on the cross. We were complicit in in breaking his body. But at the same time, his redemption has brought us that. So I want you just to break off a piece. You can bring it. You can dunk it in in the the, uh, grape juice or the wine. (laughs) Whatever choosing, whatever is most appropriate for you. And we'll go from there. So if I can have you all stand with me, I'm going to say a prayer of you, and then I would like for us to say the Lord's Prayer together. So, holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, you in your mercy sent Jesus Christ, your only and eternal Son, to share our human nature, to live and die as one of us, to reconcile us to you, the God and Father of all. He stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself in obedience to your will, a perfect sacrifice for the whole world. On the night he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took the bread 
when he had given thanks to you, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup of wine, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink, this is all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. And for many of the forgiveness of sins, whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. We celebrate the memorial of our redemption, O Father, and the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, recalling His death, resurrection, and ascension. We offer you these gifts. Sanctify them by your Holy Spirit to be for your people the body and blood of your Son, the holy food and drink of new and undying life in Him. Sanctify us also that we may faithfully receive this holy sacrament and serve you in the unity, constancy, and peace. And at last day, bring us with all your saints into the joy of the eternal kingdom. All this we ask through your Son, Jesus Christ, by Him and with Him and in Him, and the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. And now, if you will, say the Lord's Prayer with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Now that we've all had the moment to take the elements, the body, and the blood, if you will, just bow your heads and we'll say one final prayer this morning. Almighty and ever-living God, we thank you for feeding us with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your Son, of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and for assuring us in these holy mysteries that we are living members of the body of your Son and heirs of your eternal kingdom. And now, Father, send us out to do the work you have given us to do to love and serve you as faithful witness of Christ our Lord. To him, to you, and to the Holy Spirit, be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. Let us go forth in the name of Christ. Peace be with you.